So Acts chapter 21, we got Paul, if you, if you remember, we, we, we got Paul to Jerusalem last week, and we just got him there. Um, we start in Acts 21 verse 17, looking at what happens when he goes to Jerusalem. From this point to the end of the book, uh, things change dramatically. From this point to the end of the book, that the text is made up, is, is, is based really on five trials, five trials before authorities that Paul will have to endure. Just as a guess, and you're an intelligent audience, who else in the Bible faced five trials? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. These five trials that are going to consume this book, because he's going to get arrested today if we get that far. He's going to get arrested. He's going to end up going to Rome to plead his case because he's a Roman citizen. He, he undergoes five trials. Um, throughout all of these trials, what you'll see is the Romans, before whom he's being tried, the Romans don't quite get it. They don't mind what Paul's doing. They would love to let Paul go free. They couldn't care about Jewish religious squabbles. So the Romans actually come off pretty good. Keep in mind, in, in the um, book of Acts, the first um, convert out of Jerusalem was the Roman centurion Cornelius. The Romans come off looking pretty good. It's the Jewish religious leaders who throughout the book and in these five trials look terrible. Again, does that sound familiar? That's Jesus' story. So I'm sure Luke wants you to kind of connect the dots here. Um, part of what Luke is trying to show, and he, he, he does it with his gospel, he does it with the book of Acts, he's trying to show the Roman justice is good. The Romans did not hinder Christianity, the growth of, growth of Christianity. It, it, it really was the Jewish religious leaders. A lot of us think, and this is just hypothesis, that Luke might have intended volume three after the trial that takes place in Rome, uh, volume three that would allow Paul to get loose from this imprisonment at the end of Acts and go on to write the pastoral epistles. Um, a lot of us think it's in this season that we're getting into in the book of Acts. Part of what you're going to see is Paul will be in prison for two years in Caesarea, Maritima on the coast. Uh, a lot of us think it was during that two-year period because Luke is with him. Remember the we statements? Luke is with him at this point and with him in the imprisonments and with him when he goes to Rome. A lot of us think it was during this period, this two-year period, when Paul languishes in prison because he wants to be seen in Rome, that Luke wrote his gospel and wrote the book of Acts and maybe intended the third volume. So uh, that's the big picture over uh, this whole section from chapter 21, particularly beginning at verse 17 through the end. So with that, let's see how far we can get. You're going to see Paul being amazingly Jewish which that shouldn't shock you at this point. I've tried to emphasize that over and over and over again. He's Jewish. He just doesn't want the customs or the practices of Judaism to become mandatory for us Gentiles. For Jews, he hasn't. 
We're saved by grace, but if you're a Jew, you can keep all the law that you want to keep. You can keep Passover. It's probably a good thing. He never was opposed to Jews keeping the, the Jewish laws, the Jewish customs. Um, he, and you're going to see in this opening section, he and James, now remember who James is, half-brother of Jesus, head of the church in Jerusalem. That's who Paul goes to first when he goes to Jerusalem. He and James would both agree we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace through faith. But they also both would agree. If you're Jewish and you want to keep the Jewish practices as an aid to your spiritual life, as an aid to you keeping the moral law, go for it. Nothing wrong with that. So uh, sometimes still, even among Christian communities, people think Paul hated the law, hated the Torah, hated Jewish practice. He said, stop all that stuff. No, he didn't. Read the text. Um, you're going to see Paul be very Jewish here. He was just opposed. What he argues in places like the book of Galatians is don't lay the Jewish law on us. I'm assuming all of us here are Gentiles. We don't have to go through the Jewish law. And that's why when he gets to Jerusalem, they're going to once again revisit what we read in Acts 15. Remember the Jerusalem conference? How Jewish do we Gentiles have to be? What parts of the law do we have to keep? They're going to revisit that again because, and it's to be the third time. Just like, by the way, you get in this section, you get the third time where Paul relates his conversion experience. Um, so there's some repeat here. So part of what's being answered here is our relationship to the Jews, our relationship to Gentiles, uh, our relationship to Jewish practices and the law. So now he's in Jerusalem. Let's watch what happens to him. Look at verse 17 of chapter 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, notice the we. Luke is with them. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Well, I'm sure they did. Remember what he's bringing? Money. <clears throat> he's bringing aid um, from the Gentile world. And again, part of what he's doing is not just helping the Jewish Christians. He's, he's trying to bond the Jewish Christians with the Gentile Christians around the world. So yeah, they were received gladly um, to start with. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And you really need to know James. It went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Um, so as soon as he shows up, he's got to go see James. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. Um, not want to offend you and your, your church governance, but James, some of us would say, James is the bishop there in Jerusalem. There are elders surrounding James. They're helping to pastor throughout Jerusalem. But James is the episcopoi. He's the overseer. He's the head. So they got, he has to go see James. And again, remember who James is, half-brother of Jesus. This is not the James who's the brother of John because he's already been killed in the book of Acts. And I think you're told that so that you don't get this James confused. This is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus. They shared, a mo they shared a mother, didn't share a father. Half-brother of Jesus who became the head of the church in Jerusalem uh, after, after the passion and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And he was, as half-brother, we know from the Gospel of John, none of his half-brothers or sisters believed in him, Jesus, until after the resurrection. But 
But evidently, when they believed, they believed. So here's James, who is half-brother of Jesus. He's heading the church. Uh, I'm sure people give him special reverence because he grew up with Jesus. He was in Jesus' family. Anyway, that's this James. Uh, you can go to Jerusalem today. The Greek Orthodox Church, of course, have a church of St. James, and they'll show you the spot where they say he's buried. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, there in the old city of Jerusalem. But James was the head. You, you saw it back in Acts chapter 15. He, he, he headed up and led the Jerusalem conference where they had to decide how Jewish do we Gentiles have to be. So Paul and those with him go to see James and the elders. This could have ended poorly. This could have ended poorly, but it doesn't. And Luke wants you to see that. James could have said, you know, you're, you're messing up the Jewish faith. You're telling these Gentiles to ignore the Jewish faith. You're telling these Gentiles they don't have to keep all the law. You're telling these Gentiles they don't have to keep um, kosher. They don't have to keep Jewish festivals. They don't have to be circumcised. But it doesn't end poorly. It ends well. These two agree. Paul, who's going to the Gentiles, and James, who's heading the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they agree. Luke wants you to see that. Um, so, verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul is reporting to his bishop. He's reporting to the church there in Jerusalem. What, what he's been doing, running around the non-Jewish world, running around the Greco-Roman world, uh, preaching about this Jewish Messiah to all these Gentiles. So, he gives his report. We all should be accountable to somebody, particularly if you're particularly if you're in ministry. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified God. Again, this ends well. When they heard it, James and all these elders, Jewish Christians, James and all these elders, uh, they, they glorified God. They were happy. They praised God for what God was doing through Paul. And they said to him, watch this. This is amazing. You see, brother, how many thousands... Actually, the Greek word there is the word from which we get myriad. So you could, I don't think any English translation does it, you could translate it how many tens of thousands. But James says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Um, so a lot of Jews came to Christ. Not all of them. Probably, um, if you were to look at any subsect of the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders are probably the slowest to warm up to Jesus because they had to lose some of their status, some of their power, some of their place of control. I think, but among the common Jewish population, tens of thousands had come to Jesus. But look at verse 21. And, and or for, look at the end of verse 20. They are all zealous for the law. So that's why James is happy. These are all coming to Jesus, but they're zealous for the law. They're still acting very Jewish. If you were sitting beside them in a synagogue, you, would, you wouldn't know they were even Jesus believers unless they like leaned over to you and tried to witness about Jesus to you. Uh, they, were, they were, in a sense, kind of completed Jews. They, they say, the, the Jewish Messiah has come. We know who he is. Uh, so these are Jewish believers who are all zealous for the law. I'm sure they're in the synagogue every Shabbat on Friday night and Saturday morning. Verse 21, and they, and they have been told about you, about Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles 
This is why it starts getting Paul in trouble, to forsake Moses. Now, does Paul, has Paul ever told Jews to forsake Moses, the law of Moses, the practices, the customs of the Jewish faith? No. James understands this. What he's saying is there's tens of thousands of Jews, probably around Jerusalem, who have come to believe in Jesus. But Paul, they're saying that you're telling everybody outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, that you don't have to pay attention to Moses and the law. Um, that's an assumption they're making about Paul. That's an assumption some Christians still make about Paul, even though they got the New Testament, that somehow Paul you know, says, in Christ the law is over. Well, the law has a different place now. The moral law still stands. That's why you believe in the Ten Commandments. Uh, ceremonial law, civil law has been fulfilled in Christ. Um, we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. You don't have to keep kosher. You don't have to do all that stuff. Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is the new temple. We don't have to do Yom Kippur. We can get saved by going to Jesus. The moral law still stands. Jesus, he fulfilled the other laws, civil and ceremonial. That's why we don't need a temple anymore. He, he, he fulfilled the moral law by living it completely, perfectly. He also fulfilled the moral law by, you know, even summarizing it for us, didn't he? You know, he summarized the moral law. Remember, it happens in all three Gospels, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He summarizes the moral law. If you want to say he summarized the Ten Commandments and everywhere else we find, find, find moral law within the 613 laws, he summarized it. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, you do that, you'll fulfill the Ten Commandments. So, so Paul never told anybody to stop, stop being Jewish. Come to Christ and walk away from your Jewish faith. But that's the rumor. You know, because Paul's, you know, he's thousands of miles away. He's running around the world, and people make assumptions. Uh, like I say, some Christians still make assumptions. Paul taught that. He, he did not. Anyway, so here's what James is saying. I'm thrilled. I'm glad. It's a great report, Paul. Thank you for what you're doing. There's tens of thousands of uh, Jews coming to, coming to Christ. But they think you're going around attacking Judaism. Remember what got Stephen, the first Christian martyr, killed? Back in chapter 7 of Acts, they, they said you were teaching against the temple and against the law. Well, I'm pretty sure Stephen didn't do that either. He just had a new take on the temple. This is going to get him in trouble. So to get the whole sentence, here again James says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. He's not talking moral law. He's talking about practices, you customs, you know, whether it's, you know, there's lots of customs Jews have, lots of practices. Um, so, you know, that's what People are hearing about Paul in Jerusalem. That's why Paul knew it was not be safe for him to go back to Jerusalem. He knows he can defend himself if people listen. Again, human nature is constant. People love to make assumptions. And even when he makes a defense, guess what? Some of them don't listen. 
because they've already made their minds up because of their assumptions about Paul. Verse 22, what then is to be done? I mean, James knows this may not end well for Paul because of assumptions people have. They will certainly hear that you have come. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. Now watch what they tell Paul and notice he does it. So James is trying to help Paul out here to make sure he has a good reputation among the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem. Do what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. It's a Nazarite vow. Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. Remember, Paul, was, Paul took a Nazarite vow. That's a vow where you just have a season in your life, like a revival season, a renewal season, where you want to dedicate yourself anew to God. In the Nazarite vow of Jew, Judaism, um, you don't cut your hair, you don't get close to dead bodies, you don't drink wine, and there's probably other things. That's the Nazarite vow. Remember, Paul took the Nazarite vow when he was in Corinth, probably because all he was going through and all he had to deal with in Corinth. He rededicated himself to God through the Nazarite vow. And remember, you remember the text, he, he had his hair cut when it was at Sancria. That's, what, that's how you end the Nazarite vow. You, you finish that season, probably a month, could be longer. You finish that season of, of focusing on God, kind of like a period of Lent, focus on God. You finish that season, you cut your hair, and you offer that hair at the temple. And we talked about that way back when Paul left Corinth, that part of what he was going to carry to Jerusalem was his hair. So here's four men that James knows of. They, um, they, they have taken the Nazarite vow. Verse 24, take these men. They finished their Nazarite vow. Their season of Lent, renewal, revival is over. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them. So what you do at the end of the Nazarite vow, you go to the temple, you go to the priest, you offer your hair, and maybe some other things, some other offerings. You offer that hair that you cut, that, uh, that you let grow during your period of the vow. You offer that to um, God. Um, these four men are at that point. So James says, you take them and you do the same thing. You, you, you not necessarily cut your hair because he did that. He's bringing his hair. But he, 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 he needs to purify himself. Now, inquiring mind should say, lot you should notice, why should he purify himself? And he doesn't. Well, the main reason we think he's purifying himself, what's he been doing for so long? He's been hanging out with folks like me and you. He's been hanging out with Gentiles. He's been traveling the Greco-Roman world. He's been out of the Holy Land, which can make you unholy. So he needs to purify himself. He's come back with Gentiles. And as a matter of fact, he's come... Hold this. He's come from the Gentiles, and he's brought some Gentiles with him, which is going to be probably the issue in a minute. So he goes, he says, uh, he goes. He goes and purifies himself with those four men that are offering their hair because they've ended their vow, probably a Nazarite vow. Notice what Paul does because he's, James is saying we need to do some damage control. We need to do some PR. We want to make sure that Jews in Jerusalem who have come to Christ know how devout a Jew you are, Paul. So he says, go with them. Um, and pay their expenses, their offering to the temple, so that they may shave their heads. I'm still in verse 24. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. They weren't lying. James wasn't lying, and Paul's not lying. He lived in observance of the law. He just didn't want us to have to observe all the Jewish law. 
Um, so that's why as soon as you hear this, you should say, okay, now, okay, what, how, how Jewish do we need to be? And this is where you're going to be reminded of Acts 15. So um, James is trying to help Paul do some damage control by going to the temple, paying for those four men to uh, end their Nazarite vow, and while he's there, be purified himself, go through the temple ritual because he's been hanging out with so many folks like me and you, Gentiles. Um, look at verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter, back to Acts 15, we have sent a letter. Luke wants you to hear this three times, Gentiles. If you haven't heard the first two times, get it this time. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgments that they should, colon, here comes what, what we have to do. This is how Jewish we have to be. Notice what's not in the list. Kosher's not in the list. Circumcision's not in the list. Keeping ceremonial laws not in the list. Keeping civil laws not in the list. But notice what's in the list. This is the third time you've been given it. So this, this is how much of Judaism is binding on us. Here it is. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Yeah, Gentiles, please avoid idolatry in all the forms and fashions. Whether it's worshiping Buddha or worshiping money, avoid idolatry. So that's, that's on the list. You have to abstain. If it's a Gentile, you have to abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood. You know, we usually bleed our meat because it's rather gross and pagan and yeah, that's just in Judaism, it's in Christianity. I hope it's in you when you eat your steaks. Yeah, just kind of watch that blood. There's something about it. And part of it is, not that they're opposed to rare steaks, but their blood is sacred in biblical thought. Blood is sacred. The life is in the blood, you're told in the Old Testament. So you abstain from blood, um, from what has been strangled, because, you know, you want to strangle, kill your meat, but bleed it also. And then look at the next one. This is the third time we've been told this. And from sexual immorality. The moral law stands. Don't commit adultery. Now, if you think that is the only sexual moral standard that you find in the law of Moses, you need to reread the book. Go look at Leviticus 18. Go look at throughout the Old Testament. Go look at throughout the New Testament. They, they had more than just avoid adultery. I'm just mentioning that because that's in the Ten Commandments. That's obviously a moral law that stands. Um, but notice here, now some translations, and yours might, instead of saying from sexual immorality, some translations translate the word there, and we talked about this back in Acts 15, translates the word there, fornication. Uh, which is a more narrow version, one type of sexual immorality, uh, having sexual relationships with someone that's not your spouse. But the word here, and it really should be translated sexual immorality, the word here in the Greek is porneia. You know what English word we get from porneia, pornography. So it's a general overview of all types of sexual morality, not as defined by the 21st American century, 21st century of America, but as defined by the Jewish faith. That didn't go away. You know, so if you find a sexual moral law or a moral law in general in the Old Testament, you can't say, well, that's Old Testament. You've got to understand our relationship to Judaism, understand our relationship to the law. Don't go yanking down copies of the Ten Commandments. I mean, we as Christians, we keep that because that's moral law. Even the 
part about the Sabbath, we believe, in the Ten Commandments is moral law. You have to keep that. So again, we're revisiting once again and asks, how Jewish do we have to be? And again, because we're trying to defend Paul. They're trying to defend Paul. Luke's trying to defend Paul before Romans and Jews. And before Jews, he's saying Paul is observant of the law. He never tells Jews not to be observant of the law. He just says Gentiles are not in bondage to the law of Moses, but we have to do that. I just read those four things. So that's, this is almost summarizing everything we know about Paul. Okay, so... And obviously, Paul thought this was all good advice. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself with a temple ritual along with them. They went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Yeah, I think it's probably seven days of purification he had to go through after spending all this time in Gentile world. He goes through these seven days of purification. Paul's keeping the law. He's never told Jews not to. So, um, so does that make it end well? Well, you know the story of the book of Acts already. Paul's trying to do damage control, uh, listening to the advice of James. Paul's trying to show all the Jews there in Jerusalem who have come to believe in Jesus. These are Jews who have come to believe in Jesus um, and the rest of the Jews there who probably hate him a whole lot more than the Jews who believe in Jesus, trying to show them, you know, what he really believes, what he's really been doing going around the uh, Greco-Roman world. Still not going to end well for Paul. Um, look at verse 27. When the seven days, that's seven days of purification, were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, here they come again. They, like, again, Pac-Man, you know, everywhere Paul goes. Here's this, these Jewish religious leaders who don't have a life. The only thing they want to do is destroy the preaching of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. So these Jews from Asia, again, what's Asia? We call it Turkey. Rome called it Asia. That's why some people call it Asia Minor. These are probably Jewish Christians or Jews from Ephesus where Paul lived for three years. Oh, they've, had it, they've, all, they've had it in for Paul ever since the beginning of Acts. So, yeah. Here come these Jews from Asia. They are motivated. And again, human nature is a constant. People love assumptions. People sometimes refuse to listen. And sometimes people are energized. I don't know where their energy comes from. They get, they get energized to do evil. And it just becomes an obsession with them. Well, here these Jews come from Asia. That's a long trip. Um, here they come, Jews from Asia, seeing him, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. Human nature is a constant. You, you, can, you can use your assumptions and your ignorance to stir up a crowd. That's what these people do. So they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul, crying. Now notice what the accusation is again. You already know this. They're crying out, men of Israel. Keep in mind, we're in the temple. Men of Israel, help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, against the people and the law in this place, this temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple. <clears throat> I'll promise you that's a lie. That was a lie. That was an accusation. Again, human nature can, people are quick to believe rumors, I've noticed in my lifetime. So the rumor these people are starting is he's been running around the world condemning Judaism, condemning the law of Moses, and now here he is in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, and he's even brought Greeks, Gentiles, into the temple. And we have found, and one in the late 1800s, one in the 1930s, 
in the temple, between the parts of the temple, like between the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, court of Israelites, holy of holies, there was a part of the temple that was set aside as court of Gentiles. We have found pieces of the wall that separate the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. And on that wall, it says, Gentile, you pass this wall, it's the death penalty. We have two in museums. So that's what would happen. You know, and what they're saying is Paul snuck a Jew. I mean, Paul snuck a Greek. He snuck a Jew. They're going to tell you the name in a minute, which again, it's all a lie. They're saying he, he, he brought one into the temple. He brought, because they're trying to paint this picture that Paul is anti-Jewish, anti-law, anti-Moses. None of that's true. He just, see, he just sees Gentiles. You know, in, in some forms of Judaism, not maybe in the modern world, but in ancient Judaism, they called us Gentiles dogs. And that was not a compliment. Um, there was an old prayer in Judaism. You know, don't hold this against all the Jews. Thank God that I'm not a woman nor a Gentile. Obviously, it's male Jews who prayed that one. But, you know, there's this division. When Paul in Ephesians talks about the barrier coming down between Gentiles and Jews, I think he's thinking about that wall that he knew well. It was four and a half feet tall that separated the Gentiles from everybody else in the temple. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're spreading this rumor. He even brought Greeks into the temple. Yeah, he's spreading this rumor. As an aside, I've learned a lot in the last couple of years. I've heard stuff off the street. I've learned stuff about me off the street that I didn't even know. Because, um, of course, people hear rumors, they bring it to me. Um, anyway, yeah, as human nature is a constant. Human nature is a constant. Anyway, he even brought Greeks into the temple, and he has defiled this holy place. Verse 27, for they had previously seen Trophy, Trophimus the Ephesian, a Gentile, with him in the city. In the city, in the city. But they're saying they brought him, they brought him into the temple. They supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Well, no, he didn't. Again, assumption. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. It's easy to excite a mob. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once, this may be, in Luke's mind, and we just think this, this phrase may be much more meaningful than it looks on the surface. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were slammed shut to the temple. This may, I think, in Luke's mind, symbolize. Yeah, I mean, give, after the temple gets destroyed and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had theological reasons for not fighting the Romans to save the temple and save animal sacrifice. Yeah, our divorce from our Jewish roots grew. So besides the fact Christians were made all around the world, even with the destruction of the temple and our lack of reacting the way they wanted us to react to the destruction of the temple, and there's other reasons, the division between Gentile um, Christians and Jewish Christians, and particularly Jews in general, grew. So I think when Luke says the doors of the temple were slammed shut, that's like in John's gospel, when on the night in the upper room, Judas leaves. You know, Jesus says, do what you want to do quickly. And John's gospel said he went out and it was night. He wasn't just giving you a weather report. 
It was night in a lot of ways. The door slammed shut to the temple. Verse 31. Now watch, here comes the Romans. Notice how they're depicted. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort. That is a commander over a thousand soldiers and that are stationed now, at this point, they're stationed in Jerusalem because they're normally stationed at Caesarea on the coast and join the Mediterranean Sea. But remember, Paul, Paul is Pentecost. Remember, Paul wanted to get here by Pentecost. It's a Jewish festival, so okay, thousand Roman soldiers have come to town to keep peace among these Jews that they have such a hard time understanding. And you got you to know some geography here, and you're going to see Luke knows it well, and he's a good historian. If you just depict the Temple Mount as sort of not a square, but kind of a rectangle, that's the Temple Mount, huge complex. Herod the Great, the builder, who built a lot of things, always to impress Rome, one of the things he built to impress Rome was he built the Antonio Fortress. For Roman soldiers to be garrisoned in when they're in Jerusalem. If you've traveled to Jerusalem and they've taken you underneath a convent um, and on the ground they show you markings where Roman soldiers played games and hopefully you, you made the connection. What you are looking at under that convent in Jerusalem is some of the remains of the Antonio Fortress where the Roman soldiers were, were garrisoned. The Antonio Fortress literally was attached to the northwest wall, outside wall, of the temple. And it was high enough. Guess what the Roman soldiers could do? They, because the Jews, again, the Roman soldiers want to keep the peace and make sure you pay taxes. Other than that, they didn't care who you worshipped, how you did it, but you had to keep the peace. That and peace tended to be destroyed when all the Jews would come, like Passover with Jesus. Uh, that was a volatile time when all the Jews came. So they would go, stay at the Antonio Fortress. They literally could look down on the temple precinct. And notice, Luke knows that because notice how he depicts this. And as they were seeking to kill Paul, word came to the tribune, the commander of the cohort of Roman soldiers, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Yeah, they're in Antonio Fortress. They can look and see, yeah, there's some commotion going on down there. So they run down the steps of the Antonio Fortress. Uh, they run down to them. And when they saw the tribune, the commander, and the soldiers... Yeah, they stopped beating Paul. The Romans did not like disturbance for whatever reason. Again, Rome was famous, is famous. Keep the peace and, and, and pay your taxes. That, that's their big thing. So, yeah, they stopped beating Paul when Rome showed up. Notice, again, the, the justice of Rome, Luke always depicts positively in the life of Paul. The Jewish religious leaders, not so much. So... Um, Anyway, so they run down, they go into the temple, and when the tri they saw the tribune and the soldier, they stopped beating Paul, verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul, just to get him out of there, ordered him to be bound with two chains. That means he's chained to two Roman soldiers. That's what that means. They ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. I'd like to have heard that conversation. You know, Paul, how could you make this many Jews this mad? Um, but somehow they're trying to figure out what Paul did to make all these Jews mad. Anyway, verse 34. 
Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. Typical crowd mob behavior. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he, the commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, Antonio Fortress, right there affixed to the temple. And when he came, when he came to the steps going in up to Antonio Fortress. The soldiers, uh, he, when he comes to the step, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So Rome is saving Paul at this point. For the mob of the people followed, crying away with him. You've heard that before, haven't you? That's what he said about Jesus. Away with him, crucify him. Um, keep going. We're going to stop before Paul's speech. Uh, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, the commander, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, you know Greek, or do you know Greek? The tribunal, the commander's shocked because Paul speaks to him in a language he understands. Uh, do you know Greek? You know Greek. And Paul does know Greek. He knows some Latin. He, he's Jewish. He, he speaks Aramaic, but he's very cultured. Uh, verse 38, watch this. This is the about the only thing the Romans can connect it to. Are you not the Egyptian? The Egyptian. I'll tell you who the Egyptian is in a moment. Then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the Sicarii or the assassins out into the wilderness. We know about him because of the writings of Josephus. This was a Jewish, from the point of view of Romans, a Jewish terrorist who tried to, one of the many who tried to lead a revolt against Rome. And it, they were defeated, according to Josephus. But their leader, this particular Egyptian Jew, got away. So the only thing these Romans can imagine, are you, are, you, are you this Egyptian that's been such a problem? Paul replied, I am a Jew, I am a Jew, from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, or as King James says, I think a, 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 not a mean city, of no mean city. Tarsus was famous. It was an intelligent university city. So he either grew, he grew up in Tarsus, he went and got trained in Jerusalem. So he's saying, you know, I've got good credentials. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Isn't that interesting? Permit me. Again, Paul will do anything, including get arrested by the Romans, to witness to his faith in Christ. So they've saved him from the crowd, and he says, let me speak to the crowd. Um, Fascinatingly, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on these steps leading into the Antonio Fortress, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew or Aramaic, which is a dialect of Hebrew. That's what he had been speaking. So Paul speaks to these Romans in Greek. Now he's turning, he's going to speak to the crowd in their language. We'll look at what he says next week. Um, Fascinating text about a lot of things. Yeah, Patty. He, this is, um, in, in this, it's, it's less than third. I think it's really his second because we still got Justice and Festus. Um, it's probably third, maybe, maybe third. Because he, he's, he's, he's been hauled in before. Sometimes he's been hauled in, you know, like in Philippi. The Romans keep stepping in and saving him. He was arrested in Philippi. He went to the jail. So, yeah, there, there's, there's several times he's arrested. Um, and you'll keep seeing that. But it's, one, it's, one, it's not the first time. Y'all can do the math and go back and count. 
my guess is it may be three, or it could be two. I mean, there were those riots in Ephesus, but I'm not sure he actually was. I have to go back and look. Yeah, that's coming. That's where he's going to go. That's where the soldiers are going to take him from Jerusalem. Yep. That's why, that's why they could let him go. But he says, I'm, I'm, I'm Roman citizen. I want to plead in my case, not before you. This guy's name is Claudius Lysias, who's the head, who's the council here in Jerusalem. We know that historically. He says, I, I don't want to plead my case before you. I want to plead my case in Rome because Paul wants to get to the center of the empire to preach Jesus. But because of that, he languishes for two years in prison. And he ends up for Festus before Sergius, before um, Felix. That's what's going to happen as we go th continue to go through the book of Acts. Yeah, Paul knew the inside of a prison well. Um, fascinating text. Yeah, for, and for particularly Christians who think Paul was Christian, he wouldn't know that term. He was Jewish. He never assumed he was anything but Jewish. He lived as a Jew. He, but he believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So he took the good news of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentile world and made sure that we didn't have to like, I'm glad I can eat pig. I'm glad I can eat shrimp. I'm glad. He, he Making sure that we didn't have to keep all of the law of Judaism. Because I, I used to tell some of my Jewish friends, I'm not smart enough to be a rabbi. I mean, I got one book. You ever seen the Talmud and the Mishnah? I mean, rabbis have volumes and volumes and volumes of sacred texts that explains the Old Testament to them. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to be a rabbi. I'm glad Paul helped us out as Gentiles and said that we, we keep the Old Testament, we keep the moral law of the Old Testament. Jesus illustrated how to live it. We try our best to keep it. We fail at it. That's why we need grace. We get rid of the, of the civil law and the ceremonial law. We keep the moral. Because there's massive confusion among Christians in this culture. You know, if I hear one more pastor say to me, well, you know, I don't have to avoid shrimp. I don't have to avoid clothes of mixed fabric. Therefore, I can have sex with anybody I want. <laughs> they're not reading the book and, and they're letting their theology um, they're letting their theology follow their own personal motives and personality and we all do that to a certain extent but we need to be a little careful about that yeah again just remember adultery that's in the Ten Commandments we have to keep the sexual moral law as the Jews defined it so that was what Paul was doing. And I understand the Jews back in headquarters, even the Jewish Christians back in headquarters, couldn't quite figure out Paul. He's a little complicated, you know. And that's why if you ask Paul, do you support the law of Moses and the ways of Judaism, he'd have to kind of, he couldn't give you one word answer. He'd have to kind of explain to you and say, are you talking about for Jews or for Gentiles? Um, and he's talking, to, yeah, it, and that, I understand um, Peter, um, Peter in the New Testament, in one of his epistles, says there are hard things to understand in the writings of Paul. Well, yeah, some things are a little bit more complicated than we simple-minded people want them to be. Uh, and, and particularly when you think about our relationship to Judaism, what parts of Judaism we keep, what parts we can let go of. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of contemporary Christians just don't get it. And every one of mo most of the Christian Articles of religion and faith explicit for the last thousand years explicitly say in Christ the civil and the ceremonial laws fulfilled, the moral law still stands. 
That's why, like even John Wesley said, you cannot preach the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't get rid of the Old Testament. We, we read it differently. We interpret it in some way differently. Not just what we think about it, but we interpret it through the work of Christ. That's why I don't have to offer blood sacrifices upstairs. Uh, we interpret the Old Testament. But the moral law stands. And I don't know why well, it's convenient for our modern Christian culture in the West to ignore the, that, as far as God goes, the moral law still stands. We may be, and we are very imperfect at keeping it, but we can't just vote it out of existence because it doesn't fit our culture. So, yeah, as Gentile Christians, you have to understand how Jewish do you have to be? Um, how do we look at Judaism? So this, this is a fascinating text. Let's pray and i get you out of here. God, I'm so grateful for these people that truly want you to be the center of their life. And they want your wisdom because our wisdom's not sufficient. They want to follow your will because our wills continually get us in trouble. They want to follow, we want to follow your dream for our lives because even our dreams can get us in trouble sometimes. So we thank you that you're not only a God who loves us, but you're a God who communicates to us. We, we thank you that you communicate to us through your word written, that which we call the Bible. May we indeed, perhaps contrary to our culture, may we indeed again see the Bible as the holy Bible. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.